This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're an intelligence analyst with the government for how many years? 25 years, since 1991. Do you miss it? Some aspects of it I, I do miss. This is a guy named Daryl Johnson. He used to be an intelligence analyst for the Department of Homeland Security. He focused on domestic terrorism, extremist movements. You know, it's a very tight-knit group of analysts and police officers that cover these topics. And, you know, I try to keep in touch with them. And we discuss these issues and we talk about the current climate of the country and, and how domestic terrorism is increasing. And we're very concerned. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder if after last week, you guys have just been in touch nonstop talking about how to deal with this. Yeah, most of it is, you know, talking about how nothing's being done. After last week's attempted bombings and the synagogue shooting over the weekend, there's been so much talk about how we got here, about whether the president's fiery rhetoric encouraged the men behind these attacks, somehow gave them confidence in their twisted beliefs. But Daryl Johnson thinks about this moment differently. He says... Yeah, what we saw last week is part of a wave of violent far-right extremism, a wave that seems to be cresting now. But this wave started building years ago. Daryl can even pinpoint when. Because back then he was running a team of government analysts, focusing on what his agency called non-Islamic terrorism. It was 2007. We got a call from the Capitol Police giving us a heads up that a young African-American senator was thinking about announcing his candidacy for the U.S. president. And we were asked to monitor some of the extremist websites for any type of chatter or threats towards this uh, person who was Barack Obama. What did you see when you did that? We saw a lot of uh, threats develop. And in fact, there were a couple of plots that were uh, uncovered by the Secret Service and FBI that were plotting to kill candidate Obama. You know, the white supremacists have been fearful uh, for years of a black president. So it was kind of their worst nightmare come true. Hmm. I don't know. You've done this for a long time. And I wonder if you sort of saw this gathering storm cloud of hate and it made you worried. That's exactly right. In fact, the project was named Gathering Storm uh, before it was even published. I'm Mary Harris. This is What Next. Today, what happened when one man tried to warn the country about the gathering storm of far-right extremism? How it prompted a backlash from people who viewed the report as an attempt to tar the political right? And how that backlash left the government less able to track this domestic threat? Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before Daryl Johnson became an expert in extremist movements and domestic terrorism, before he warned Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano about a surge in right-wing agitators following the election of President Barack Obama, before his report was leaked to the media, inspiring a conservative backlash, before he was thrown under the bus by his own agency, before all that, Daryl Johnson was a Mormon teenager, riveted by an FBI raid on a far-right compound. There was a standoff in Arkansas uh, back in 1985 involving some white supremacists and the police and some fugitives. And I was just attracted to this topic because, you know, at the time I was very religious and I was just wondering why people would, you know, quit their jobs, cut off ties to family, move out to a remote part of Arkansas and prepare for Armageddon Hmm. and actually conduct attacks to try to hasten that. And uh, so that kind of planted a seed in me that grew as I went to college and majored in political science, and I saw the Ruby Ridge standoff and then the Waco standoff. And I ultimately uh, went to work for the government, initially looking at foreign overseas terrorism, uh, but had such a, I guess, passion and interest in domestic terrorism that um, I eventually started you know, going down that career path because there were so few analysts that uh, had knowledge and expertise in that area. So it's 2009. We've just had our first black president elected and you decide to write a report. Who did this report go to? The DHS report of 2009 was meant for federal, state, and local law enforcement and their decision makers. It ended up going way beyond that, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, It was in April 2009. And I was actually had the day off. I was helping the Boy Scouts deliver mulch for a fundraiser. And I heard the story during a news break on the radio. And I couldn't believe that they were talking about my report and that it was leaked so quickly within like three days after it was issued. How did it go beyond this initial group that you gave it to? Well, we started finding out that there were military members that received it. And then, of course, it got into the conservative media realm. Pat Robertson of the 700 Club and Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. And so all these uh, conservative media personalities started taking things out of context and criticizing the analysis and characterizing it as a hit job against conservatives. And did you immediately know whether this would be good or bad for you? I was a little confused because, you know, I'm not used to having my intelligence work being discussed on, you know, public media sites. And so I knew that it was going to generate a lot of questions, but I never envisioned that it was going to generate so much negative backlash from the Republicans and conservatives. Because I myself, I'm a conservative, registered Republican, And I never foresaw uh, how people would politicize the report and use it uh, to try to embarrass the new administration. What did it mean to you to see people who are also Republican and conservative using your work to argue that somehow the Department of Homeland Security was biased against them? 
frustrating. You know, I was just doing my job. Uh, the term right-wing extremism is, is common in the counterterrorism lexicon. The FBI, you know, used to publish an annual report on terrorism in the United States, and they constantly referred to both right-wing extremism and left-wing extremism. And so for people to object to that term and to somehow think that it was uh, an attack against conservatives, uh, it really was eye-opening to me and shocking. What happened to your career after this report came out? Well, my career was pretty much uh, upended at the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, we faced, you know, scrutiny from the management and retaliation from management officials. And so I just thought it would be best to just get out of that toxic environment and start a company and continue on and training law enforcement and try to educate the public on these threats. Yeah, I mean, you've said that usually domestic terror kind of goes dark during Republican administrations, but it seems like we're seeing the opposite right now. That's exactly right. Um, During Republican administrations, because that fear of a gun ban or gun control, uh, that fear of extending rights to minority groups dissipates. And so a lot of these groups kind of lose, you know, their strength and and their message because they have a person in power that kind of uh, placates uh, those things, where during Democrat administrations, they get more agitated because of what the Democrats stand for. The thing that's different between President Obama's contribution to the rise of these groups and President Trump's contribution to the increase of these groups is Barack Obama did nothing. He was put in a very difficult position because, you know, being, you know, a person of color as well as a Democrat, if he were to, you know, crack down on these groups, um, it could even agitate them further and have even more violence. And so I think he was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. President Trump doesn't have those barriers. He's a Republican. He's a white male. And so, you know, what he's doing to contribute to this problem is the fact that he's taken some of these extremist narratives and put them into the mainstream and is putting them forth as policy. I had seen extremists talking about this on white supremacist message boards 10 years ago. Hmm. What's interesting to me is what you're saying is that President Trump is actually in this really good position to try to control this because he's a white guy and he's a Republican. And so President Obama was in a position where, you know, he might have inflamed people by cracking down. You know, you still work in domestic terrorism and you've said lone wolf actors like the attempted bomber in Florida, like the shooting suspect in Pittsburgh, they're hard to stop. What could we even do to minimize these threats now? Well, there's a lot of things that need to be done. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but it starts with training law enforcement officers in these threats. Uh, it's, it's you know developing policies at the state and local level as well as the federal level to prioritize resources towards this threat, to develop confidential informants, to put in undercover agents embedded into these movements, to commit yourself to identifying the next terrorist and preventing it. Uh, There's a lot of things that need to be done. We're not even tracking domestic terrorism at the national level and, and producing a report to our legislators and other decision makers to just let them know where the threat is and is it increasing or decreasing. So there's so much to do. 
Daryl Johnson, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. Daryl Johnson is the former senior domestic terrorism analyst for the Department of Homeland Security. He now owns DT Analytics, a private consulting company. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There's a story I noticed out of Dodge City, Kansas today. It's about a polling station that suddenly moved out of town. The ACLU got worried voters wouldn't be able to get to the polls on Election Day, and they sued. Yesterday, they lost. I called up Slate's Mark Joseph Stern to tell me the latest about all this. He's been keeping track of what's going on in Kansas for one reason. The person overseeing the election there is a guy named Chris Kobach. He's Secretary of State. He's also running for governor. Mark calls him the king of voter suppression. But I started off by asking Mark to tell me a little bit more about what's happening in Dodge. So what we're seeing in Dodge City is a sort of classic type of voter suppression that we've seen all around the country, uh, especially since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act uh, in 2013 and gave jurisdictions a lot more power to target minority voters. So the new strategy, which has been perfected by uh, people like uh, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who is currently running for governor, uh, is to move or close a bunch of polling places uh, in minority-heavy districts. Uh, In the case of Dodge City, this is a majority Latino city. The officials there have moved the polling place to about a mile outside the city where there is virtually no bus service, where people without cars, people without a lot of time to take off from work will struggle to get to, right? It's going to be hard to get there. And so this is just the new trend. And unless we have a a, a judiciary that's willing to vigorously protect voting rights, you're not going to be able to do much to fight this kind of flagrant voter suppression um, because, unfortunately, judges just aren't stepping up the way they used to. And Chris Kobach, the guy who administers these elections, he seems to be like failing up. Like he's secretary of state, he's running for governor, but folks didn't even think he'd win their Republican primary, right? No. Uh, He was supposed to lose the primary to Collier, who is the current governor of Kansas, a Republican governor, very popular. But Trump stepped in at the last minute and gave Kobach his endorsement. Uh, Of course, Kobach oversaw the ill-fated voter fraud commission that Donald Trump set up after the election to try to prove that he actually won the popular vote. Uh, And so I think in a lot of voters' minds, Kobach and Trump were linked. Uh, That's probably what pushed Kobach over. Um, if not also the maladministration of the election, which led to the nullification of a fair number of ballots that were probably going to be cast for Collier. It was a very close race, but seeking to avoid a kind of Republican internal warfare, uh, Collier stepped out and and said, I'm not going to contest this, which allowed Kobach to get where he is today. You said something earlier I want to go back to, which is you said that courts have a lot of power here and we're really seeing the judiciary weigh in in these voter fraud cases. I'm wondering 
what that means for the rest of us, for folks who aren't living in Kansas or Georgia? Does that mean that what's happening in this small town may be signs of what's to come in other places? Uh, I definitely think so. I, I mean, New York is actually a hotbed of voter suppression, or was until very recently. There were uh, totally illegal purges of mostly minority voters in Brooklyn uh, in 2016. There were lawsuits filed against the city that the city had to settle. Several election officials were fired or resigned in disgrace. So it's wrong to think about this as just a red state issue. This is a problem around the country, um, not just in Kansas and Georgia. And like I said, the the fundamental problem with voter suppression is that voters themselves can't necessarily fight back, right? It, it seems very obvious, but they lose their power to vote, and so they can't just vote the bad guys out. That's why voting is a fundamental right under the Constitution. That's why courts are supposed to protect it. Um, but again, even under Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court, um, the judiciary wasn't doing very much to protect voting rights. Uh, it's about to get a whole lot worse under Justice Kavanaugh, um, because one of Roberts' main beliefs, the Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, is that the courts just shouldn't be involved with this kind of stuff, with election matters. Uh, and so we're going to see more co-box across the country. We're going to see more maladministration. And we're going to see more sort of outright racist voter suppression. Well, you say this is getting worse. I kind of wonder if it's getting worse or if we're just noticing it more. Oof, that's a perennial question and a tough one. Uh, I think that it is getting worse because Republicans are getting smarter about how to suppress the vote, right? So closing polls in minority counties is nothing new. Um, but Republicans have learned that there's this thing called the Purcell Principle. Uh, and this is a, a Supreme Court rule that says that courts can't weigh in or change election rules right before the election. Uh, and so what happened in Kansas is a great example of how how this uh, really harms voters. The ACLU only found out about this uh, right before the election because the election administrators only really acknowledged it uh, shortly before the election. At that point, the clock had already run down. Um, another example is in North Dakota, right? North Dakota Republicans didn't just pass a standard voter ID law. They passed a law that required every ID to include a residential street address, which expressly targeted native Native American voters who often live on very rural tribal reservations and simply don't have an official residential address. They used to use their P.O. box as their formal address. Now they can't do that. And the courts have permitted that as well. And so I think Republicans uh, are sort of learning from experience. They're figuring out what works and what doesn't. They have lots of operatives and lobbyists who are happy to ghostwrite this legislation. Uh, and so I think this is just an instance of Republicans getting better at it as they go on. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for explaining it. Thanks so much for having me on. One more thing I want to mention before I leave you. Our Wednesday show is about the war in Yemen and the looming threat of famine there. We spoke to Eric Nagorny of The New York Times about the paper's decision to publish photographs of a young girl named Amal Hussein. She was malnourished, barely there looking away from the camera. He wrote to us yesterday to tell us Amal Hussein died on Thursday. She was seven years old. You can read a remembrance of her over at the New York Times. That's our show for today. What Next is a way for Slate Magazine to flirt with the idea of a daily news show. 
But this courtship, it's only going to last a couple more weeks. Then we're going to go on a little break before launching full force in January. So let us know what you want us to keep doing when we come back. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can just email us. We're at whatnextatslate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. Thank you this week to Allison Benedict, Slate's executive editor. Talk to you Monday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.